0: Just a heads up, this conversation with Eli Culp was recorded at the very beginning of the pandemic. We've been holding on to it for a while while Philly Who was on hiatus. Today, you get to hear the story in full.
1: When I moved to Philadelphia, finally, in 2012, I was finally in, like, sandwich heaven. You know, the hoagie culture here. And, you know, they take them so serious, and you can get great ones, especially in South Philly. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories
0: of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today is the story of a local Philly chef who, one night, while at the top of his game, was in an Amtrak derailment that left him unable to walk, unable to use his hands, and unable to cook. The story of chef Eli Kolp is now on Philly Who. Everyone experiences peaks and valleys during their lifetimes, and eventually, we learn to enjoy the high points while building a support system to cope with the low ones. However, coping becomes much more difficult when life takes an extreme and unexpected turn. Eli Culp knows this all too well. In 2015, he was experiencing a career high when a train accident changed his life forever. Forever.
1: It felt and sounded as if the noise you would make if you were a guitarist, like an electric guitar, and you turn the volume up to 10 and, and just sort of like, just hammered on all the chords. Like that sound went through my body. This forced him to adapt
0: in ways he had never dreamed. But well before his injury and career as a chef, before he even came to Philly, Eli spent his childhood in the Pacific Northwest. Before he was born, Eli's parents, who were kind of nomadic hippies, were looking for something more permanent. And at that point, they stumbled upon a real estate listing in Mossy Rock, a Washington state lumber town.
1: It was just an old dusty country road. And at the end of it was a plot of land, two and a half acres with a painted blue single wide trailer and had a well on it. So that's where they planted their flag. And that's where he grew up. And it's right by a, a lake that's like 30 miles long and hunting, fishing, boating, like just real sort of hillbilly type life, I guess you mm. could say. And yeah. um, it's a lot of poverty, a lot of trailer parks. I definitely grew up under the poverty line. Wow. Right. So if it wasn't for this woman who decided to come to Mossy and open this little cafe slash pizza to go kind of place... You know, I wouldn't have been, I would never have gotten into food. So this woman came into the Mossy Rock and opened this little cafe called the Irish Rose Cafe. And I got a job as dishwasher busboy. I mean, this is crazy. Like she decided to open a restaurant that had tablecloths, linen napkins, and I was in a white shirt, black pants, and a green bow tie and a green cummerbund as a busboy in this, (laughs) in this like little town like it's something out of a movie, right? Like the city people come in and they want to change this little town and they think they have this audience, but it was way, way out
0: of place. Yeah. So you started as a busboy and you worked your way up to cook. How did you, when you first started there and, and I guess saw meals other than the six to eight that you normally saw, I mean, what were your first impressions of food?
1: Yeah, that's where I started like using things like soy sauce and, you know, cooking a steak and prime rib and salt crusted prime rib and You know, as I got more and more into the kitchen, I kind of got addicted to it. And by the time I left high school, I knew what I was going to be doing. So I went right to uh, culinary school down in Portland, Oregon.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Were there any surprises actually getting into cooking as like a career?
1: I had a good head on my shoulders. My parents raised me right. So, you know, what I was surprised about was like, holy shit! Like the restaurant industry, like back in the '90s, like drugs, party, and alcohol. Like you get off work, and you know, everybody's doing what, you're hooking up with everybody. It was just, you know, it's like this, you know, this three ring circus, these restaurants you get into. Thanks to his
0: upbringing and professional mentors, Eli stayed off of drugs and on track towards becoming a chef. After culinary school, he took jobs around the Northwest, eventually working as the head chef at an Irish pub in Seattle. At this point, Eli found himself at a standstill and he realized he needed to expand his career.
1: I knew that, you know, I was 25 and I really needed to figure something out. And so I just started looking around and I had a few guys that had went to the Culinary Institute of America in New York. Mm-hmm. And so I got online, applied, moved out to New York, immediately started working in New York City wow. and, you know, that sort of led me to where I am today and, and thankfully working for um, some really great chefs and, you know, doing the research and find out who's really doing what in New York. I wanted to work for somebody who's relevant.
0: Was there any culture shock moving to the East Coast?
1: Um, I I don't think so. I'm kind of like a chameleon, you know, for me learning the different cultures that I was not exposed to on the West Coast. And especially growing up, you know, the Jewish culture is, was not something that I was ever exposed to, you know, the Chinese culture, the Jewish culture, the, you know, pastrami sandwiches and, (laughs) you know, the, I just love that food and, you know, sauerkraut and mustard and, you know, like the delis. And, you know, that was just, for me, that was heaven. And, yeah, you know, I always pictured before I moved out here, you know, sandwiches on every block in New York. And, you know, they have bodegas and sandwiches aren't great. I was really disappointed with New York sandwich culture. And I've always been in love with sandwiches. I used to eat them for breakfast as a kid. I just love them. And it's something that I was looking so forward to in New York. And I tell people this also, where when I moved to Philadelphia, finally in 2012, I was finally in like sandwich heaven, you know, the hoagie, <laughs> the hoagie culture here. And right. you know, they take them so serious and yeah, you can get great ones, especially in South Philly.
0: Although he was disappointed by the sandwiches, Eli found success in New York City. By 2010, he had been working his way up in the culinary industry for seven years. Then he started working as the chef de cuisine at Teresi, an upscale Italian restaurant that, to this day, continues to shape
1: his approach to dining. My friends, uh, Mario Carbone and Rich Teresi, were both very talented chefs. They opened up a little Italian restaurant because they were um, Italian themselves, Italian Americans, and they had this really Mm. great pedigree, a lot like I did. And they really wanted to take that level of cooking experience and start cooking like old school Italian Mm. food. So in the daytime, it was a sandwich shop, and then at nighttime, they did a really simple four-course meal that... It was just, it was a sensation. It's one of those moments where you see people catching lightning in a bottle. I came on about eight months after they opened because they were already looking to grow next door and put the sandwich shop over there so they could focus uh, more on this little uh, dinner operation at Teresi. And, and over the, those two years that I was there, we turned it into this real sort of uh, love letter to the food and the culture of New York. And we ended up doing like over, I think it was 22 courses a menu that we did. Um, at wow. Teresi, and every little bite, every little dish had some little story to it. We'd wake up at 9 a.m. and we would just sit there for two or three hours every day before, just going through cookbooks and trying to come up with ideas. Yeah. And we would look at these menus of you know what they were oh, wow. cooking in the early 1900s and in New York City, and we'd do spinoffs on those ideas. And you know, so it was just like this really phenomenal sort of creative time that really shaped me as a, as a chef and you know that we were able to spend so much time and uh, really dive into sort of the culture and the stories behind the dishes and you know why food became what it was and you know why we eat the way we eat today
0: Eli had a deal with Rich and Mario the owners of Teresi. eventually they were supposed to help him build his own restaurant concept but as they began to make plans
1: for the future Eli realized that this dream was farther off than he'd hoped I love these guys we are still like best buds and You know, at that moment, I told him, I was like, listen, guys, like, you know, this was not what we talked about. And I realized at that time that I I needed to really start thinking about and and, and getting more bold, I guess. I think I was a little bit afraid to step out on my own, uh, especially in New York City. And Mm. so I started reaching out to some headhunters. And one of them put me in touch with my partner now, Ellen Yin. And, you know, we started talking. I'd never been to Philadelphia. What were your expectations for Philadelphia? before you actually came down here? I don't remember ever really thinking of Philadelphia one way or the other. And, you know, I think the reputation that it does have is what you see when you watch Monday Night Football, you know, and Mm -hmm. it shows like the crazy fans and Pat's and Gino's cheesesteaks and, you know, all the cliches about Philadelphia. I think that's really all I had in my head. You know, Eagles, great sports city. And, you know, I didn't really know anything about cooking except – I'd heard of Lebec because a friend of mine in school had uh, had done an internship there. But that was really it. I came down, I think, over the July 4th holiday. I remember walking down. And this was like when the gallery was still open. And it was just like a quiet weekend. There wasn't a lot going on. And it was hot. And you know, I remember walking kind of through all that. All that riffraff that you know it would be in that on Market Street, you know, between like right. 12th and 8th Street. And I was like, oh god, what the hell's going on here? Then I started talking to Ellen, and you know, we had a good conversation. And you know, she really wanted to switch things up and really wanted to make Fork the best that it could be. So I really just started to have an appreciation for what she was saying, and from there, we just started to talk more. I I met with like Greg Vernick and I met Mike Solomonoff. I, I liked what these guys were doing and there was momentum building. And I felt like I could really add to that momentum.
0: When he came to Philadelphia, Eli wanted to continue to do what he did at Teresi and
1: center his menus around the history of local food. I started looking at, you know, the culture outside of Philadelphia, the Penn Dutch, the, you mm. know, the history of the Amish and and how they really shape the way that we eat in Philadelphia. And, you know, so, and, and my name, the cult last name is, is based in Pennsylvania. My family is, they, they immigrated here, you know, back in the 1700s. And so, for me, it was coming back and really exploring my roots. And wow. I think that was, I know that that was really what made my food stand out. Because by the time I got here in 2012, you know, there was definitely some change going on with the Philadelphia mm-hmm. dining scene. You know, guys like Greg Vernick and Nick Elmy and, um, you know, Peter Serpico and Mike Solominoff. And so for me, it was, it was really this whole new approach to dining that I was able to bring, thankfully. And, you know, I was really, I was really blown away and honored by the support that people really um, gave me. And it's one of those things you dream of as a chef. You know, yeah. the people get your food. Philadelphians didn't just get Eli's
0: food. They loved it so much that just a year after reopening Fork, Eli and his business partner, Ellen, unveiled a second restaurant, High Street. Eight months after that, they opened a kitchen and had plans to open a fourth restaurant in New York City. Eli had also caught the attention of highly respected critics. In 2014, High Street won Bon Appetit Magazine's Best New Restaurant, and Eli himself
1: won Food and Magazine's Best New Chef. Bon Appetit Magazine was interesting because Andrew Knowlton from Bon Appetit, who is kind of the restaurant editor, and he's like the kingmaker in the restaurant industry right. a lot of times, and you know he came across, we were doing this really amazing boundary-pushing bread program at High Street, really looking, again, taking the stories of the history of, of Philadelphia and, and cooking bread through kind of a chef's eyes versus like a baker's eyes. They kind of tricked us because they had reached out and they said that, you know, we want to do a story on High Street. So they actually brought a camera crew down for two days and just told us they were writing a story about us. And then about two months later, I think it was, um, they announced the Best New Restaurants. We had no idea. And, you know, I got a phone call and I was like, Ellen told me, you know, what happened. I was so confused. I was like, so, you know, I was thinking like, so they're doing this really great story on us. And they're giving us best new restaurant. I was like, "Holy shit! Like, this is crazy! Like, how 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 much publicity can they give us?" And yeah. As far as Food and Wine goes, they do it secretively. They don't they don't tell you that they're coming to your restaurant. They don't tell you anything. And right. I just got a phone call from the editor one day randomly, and I picked it up, and you know, she told me that I had made best new chef, and yeah, I really froze because Food and Wine best new chef was something that I wanted. That was one of the goals that I had as a young chef to become wow. one because I had worked for chefs who had, who had recently won it and I saw what it did for their career. And it's really one of the crowning achievements that you can have as a young chef in America. So that was, I mean, I definitely shed a tear of happiness then because, you know, that was something I had worked for and all the sacrifices, all the time I spent, you know, those 15 hour days, you know, grueling, you know, working for chefs that were borderline insane and, Hmm. you know, and cooking amazing food and, all that paid off and you know that was that was a real proud moment for me i will say that uh, emphatically that that was something that i i was really 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 honored to be a part of
0: i feel like that must have been just incredibly euphoric
1: <laughs> yeah so 2014 food and wine best New chef i think that came out in like april or something and then Bon appetit came i think out in like september of that same year. And, you know, we had all this like positive momentum and I was cooking in different cities and, you know, with other guest chefs and, you know, this sort of everything that I had hoped was coming true. And it felt great. It really felt amazing. And, you know, and then end of 2014, we started looking for the New York City restaurant. And in the early 2015, we signed that lease, and we I was already getting some great support from uh, the New York City press, food press, and it was feeling great. So, you know, about two months later, roughly, the train accident happened. In
0: 2015, Eli Kolb's career as a chef was at a high point. He was in magazines. He ran three successful Philly restaurants. His plans to open a fourth restaurant in New York meant that he spent a lot of time commuting, Right. And it was on one of these unusual commutes that a train accident changed his life forever.
1: That day on May 12th would have been a normal day, I would stay in Philadelphia. But this group of women who I really respected had a lunch and they had asked me if I would cook for them. So I came down and it was kind of an easy day for me to cook lunch for them, talk to them. You know, I checked out early and sort of heading back towards New York. Wow.
0: And so you're on the train and I, you know, as you've told the story, you got a text, right?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I I got there and then my friend uh, Nina in New York, she sent a text message. I was sitting on the train and we got a text from her and in the text, uh, she sent a picture and it was me holding my son up against the chain link fence in New York. So the trains are entering and exiting towards Grand Central Station at like 97th Street and in Park Avenue. And we'd after daycare, I'd like, Hey, you want to go check out the trains? And he would go over there and, and then he got kind of he's always had this like issue with like noise. So it got a little noisy for him. So after a while, I think we stopped for a few months, or whatever. And Dylan, I was holding Dylan up to this chain link fence overlooking the tunnel that the trains enter and exit from. And she snapped a picture and you know whatever. And we were sitting there and I had asked my my son uh, before that, I was like, Do you want to check out the trains? I said, aren't you afraid of them? You like the, the noise? And he's like, no, daddy, I'm not afraid of trains anymore. And then that night, so that was probably three or four days later, um, she sent me the picture and I replied back to her text message. I said, I said in quotation marks, daddy, I'm not afraid of trains anymore. Wow. And, you know, we sort of laughed a little bit. And I think I went to, you know, checking emails or whatnot. And it was dark out at that time. So you didn't really see, you know, how fast you're going or where exactly you were and uh, apparently the engineer was either on his phone or the radio and not paying attention to where he was. And at that point, um, this corner was approaching and he accelerated thinking he was on a straightaway. And he was going, uh, I think it was 105 miles an hour. From the reports, he was accelerating through the corner. So he didn't even like put the brakes on at all. (laughs) You know, like he had no chance, This train had no chance. And yeah, he drove us right off the track. In those moments I think time slows down a little bit. Yeah. And your memory kind of it feels a little bit slow motion. And I felt a shudder and then it got really aggressive shudder. And I remember thinking like, oh but by that time the train was derailing mm. and the train flipped over to the right side of the track. And basically it flipped on its side, which, you know, at that rate of speed, tossed me up in the air, kind of like a kind of like a springboard almost. And I flew through the air. And at that moment, you know, the only words, you know, was, this is it, lights out. You know, there's no way. And then uh, the way that I was positioned in the air, it brought me in direct contact with the opposite side luggage rack. So I was actually flying backwards. And it hit me. It, my neck squarely hit the luggage rack at, you know, at a really high rate of speed. And you know, the inertia and the power of it um, just uh, smashed my fourth and fifth vertebrae, collapsing onto my spinal cord. It felt and sounded as if the noise you would make if you were a guitarist, like an electric guitar, and you turn the volume up to ten, and and just sort of like just hammered on all the cords. Like that sound went through my body and it sort of fell down. And the train came to a stop and the luggage rack kind of fell on top of me. And, you know, I was sitting there, was well, was sitting there, I was laying there. Um, and immediately, of course, you try to push up, try to get up and the body doesn't move. Um, I yell for help and, you know, immediately I realized my voice is not strong. I don't know why, you know, at that point, but what turns out to be is that your diaphragm and your ability to, to yell uh, loudly is compromised because mm. now I don't have, you know, that muscle, those muscles are immediately knocked out. So I'm laying there in complete darkness. And I hear the rustling of other people. And, you know, people are kind of like, you know, dazed and confused. And um, there's only, I think like 15 passengers on on that train, thank God, or on that car on the train. It was, it was a r- actually a really strangely, eerily, you know, very few passengers on this train. But the, so I hear the people kind of wrestling and, you know, people are kind of like screaming and yelling. And, um, you know, I yell and nobody hears me. And so I yell, a little, like, it's just literally my voice sounds like somebody trying to talk after I got the wind knocked out of them, I guess. You know what I mean? Like they're kind of like, you know, really sort of quiet. And so I'm yelling and, um, you know, finally somebody kind of hears me and, like, ma'am, we hear you, ma'am, we hear you. And, like, I realize, like, they think it's a woman because my voice is kind of like high pitched and, and it uh, sounds sort of quiet, and you know. And then by that time, I start to get somebody's attention, and you know, they try to like help, kind of get the stuff off me, but they can't. And um, you remember one guy saying, "I can't see because he was bleeding uh, profusely from the head, and he was getting, it, you know, he couldn't see, he was getting his eyes." And you know, says, so "I'm trying to help you. I can't see you. I don't know what I'm doing." And you know, and then finally, like people started, you know, I heard the sirens. You could hear the rescuers get there. And probably five or 10 minutes later, and I just remember telling them, like, guys, just don't forget about me. Tell somebody I'm here. Tell somebody I'm here. I think I'm paralyzed. And then they sort of exited, and then maybe a few minutes later, after being in the dark, just sort of laying there, um, you know, a, what turns out to be a police officer came in, and he must have been a pretty big dude because I, you know, I was 230 pounds at the time. I'm six foot four. So um, somehow he lifted me out and got me on a board took me out and then um, yeah so they, they put me out onto the uh, kind of the triage area and they had a lot of fire trucks obviously and, and emergency personnel by then helicopters are flying all over the place and I'm laying there next to this um, this fire truck with this engine on and the heat was so intense and they put me right you know it's like it was like it was May so it was, it was a warm May day so it was it just it was so hot I remember laying there like yelling for somebody that, like get the attention to move me because I couldn't hardly breathe and you know it was just like chaos everywhere and I remember finally somebody uh the emergency worker heard me and he him and another person lifted up my the board I was laying on and moved it and, you know got me in the ambulance maybe a half hour later I just you know transported me to uh a northern North Philly hospital I remember when the surgeon came in and you know they took x-rays and MRI and you know, they, they came with the news and the x-ray that, you know, this was now your spinal cord. They showed me and they told me, we have to get you and stabilize the spinal cord so, you know, you don't die, essentially. I remember we were asking the surgeon, like, are you good at it? He's like, I'm the best, you know, like, mm. you know, and, you know, they put me down and did the surgery. And, yeah, the recovery starts immediately, you know.
0: So, you know, you said there was a moment where you thought this is it. Throughout that whole time, was there a point where you were like, actually, maybe this isn't it? Or were you still worried that you weren't going to make it?
1: I remember what ran through my head was like, how injured am I besides this? You know, Mm. immediately you lose the ability to feel and uh, move. So I, you know, I couldn't look at the rest of my body. You know, didn't know if I was bleeding elsewhere. Um, And in the end, the only other injury I had besides my neck was a separated ac joint in my shoulder and a little scratch on my knee Hmm. that was it
0: yeah so you go through surgery did they tell you right away that that you were paralyzed
1: yeah it was i mean it was obvious i you know at that point i you knew i knew and you know the outlook isn't great yeah
0: So you're just coming off of this year where, you know, many of your ambitions had come true. How is your outlook at this time?
1: Well, um, I'm a pretty optimistic guy. So in general, I think, you know, once I realized that, you know, I was going to survive and then, you know, you're battling two different fronts. You're battling, you know, trying to stay positive and people are thinking about you and people are raising money for you. You know, and immediately Philadelphia community just like went to work and, you know, I think they raised over. Uh, around three hundred thousand dollars over the course of a few weeks, you know, because obviously your medical bills just go. I mean, it's one of the most um, breaking your neck and quadriplegia is one of the most significant injuries you can have because yeah. it's not just the cost of the injury and getting surgery and rehab; it's the ongoing costs that come along with it, and you know, being dependent to for people to help you and you know, in certain aspects of your life. I still am so thankful of the Philadelphia community and. something that speaks volumes to you know the chef community here and the restaurant community and and the people who support the restaurants i mean it was like yeah i mean it was amazing what people were you know sending me and you know financial help and and just support through cards i remember having like probably 300 different cards from people that people had sent you know random people i remember getting money like it was like 12 dollars 82 or something from a young girl who had saved this money up but she wanted me to have it and Wow. You know, like those type of things where you're just like blown away by the generosity and care of people that you don't even know. And, you know, so it was really all hands on deck. And, you know, we were in the middle of opening this restaurant in New York. And, you know, very shortly after, once I got once I got stabilized, they flew me up to New York City so I could be sort of closer to um, my family. Hmm. And I was at NYU Hospital. And, you know, we, we committed very early to continue working on the New York uh, restaurant. From the hospital bed, you know, me and my partner would be um, talking and, you know, continuing to make plans to move forward. I was in the hospital from May until September and, you know, it it was a grueling process and very soon after I was injured also, uh, maybe a month or two, it was becoming very clear that my marriage was not going to make it. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot, there was that side of it as well that, you know, I was losing my support system which caused a whole nother level of panic and and despair. And, you know, so there was a lot going on. And, you know, eventually I remember, you know, just kind of sort of losing momentum of positivity. And I eventually moved down to Atlanta to do do rehab there because there's, you know, one of the best spinal cord injury hospitals in the world is there. So I was away from my family and, you know, my son and my wife. And, you know, as much as I tried to stay positive, it was really hard to not see what was going on and realizing, Mm. you know, the grief setting in and realizing that there was a lot more to this than simply just being injured and having to recover. So um, eventually, you know, I remember coming back from Atlanta to no fanfare. You know, my wife and I had not really been speaking. It was like a miserable sort of homecoming. And once I got back home and you're isolated and you you don't have the support Mm. of the doctors, the nurses, the therapists and you know, psychotherapists and everybody that's kind of there at the hospital. You know, you just kind of sit there, and you know, my son was a little over three and a half by that point, so I had that. Um, but it was also very clear that, um, and he didn't care. You know, he loved me no matter what. Right. And so I had that, and I had that light. You know, with him, and but at the same time, I was grieving. So it's kind of a crazy time. Your brain is doing backflips. You're trying to figure out how to, you know, on one hand, sort of get back on track, but on the other hand, you're you're really sort of suffering and. And, you know, your brain is, you know, just thinking like, you start thinking of thoughts like, is this worth it? You know, is my life ever going to feel 1% like it used to? And, you know, is this fight worth the battle? At the end of the day, am I I going to find myself, you know, lonely and no ability to work? And, you know, the the thoughts sort of start to uh, snowball in your head and, you know, it got to a pretty dark place and it became very, very much a fight for survival within yeah. my own head and figuring out if this was worth it or would it be easier just to end my own life.
0: Now you've said in the past that in late twenty sixteen, after you know, months and months of rehab and just, you know, trying to, to rebuild, that a
1: switch was flipped for you. Can you tell me about that? Like what changed? I think i had come to grips that my marriage was not going to happen and it became very clear that I needed to To get my shit together Mm. and wake up. I had a son that depended on me. I needed to be a dad. You know, I had great support. I had a great therapist out of Mount Sinai, Angela Riccobono, who really made me see the positives and continuing to strive to just get better and better every day. And she was always there for me if I needed her. And, you know, getting more involved with the disabled community in New York City and the support that they had uh, for me and wanting to help me. So, you know, the positive started to sort of become more obvious and I had to make that decision for me to stop kind of being pissed off and angry at something that your brain's trying to tell you like you know it was your ambition it was like you wanted to be you know living and working in two cities and you wanted two restaurants or two different cities and for your restaurants and you know and like I really sort of turned my back on food for a while and I didn't want anything to do with it and you know if it wasn't for you know Angela you know supporting me and and really really helping me see the good in in life that you know i think that i'm still here you know yeah
0: did you make an attempt to return to the kitchen at all since then have you returned to the kitchen
1: well a return to the kitchen is a um you know there's different layers to i guess uh will i ever return to the kitchen in in the full capacity you know unless there's a miracle drug or some sort of way to to fix this injury um you know one day like no I, i won't there's just no way to do it physically you know I'm in this wheelchair that takes up space. But, you know, in the kitchen for me now means, you know, speaking with our chefs, designing menu items, helping them, you know, mentoring them, you know, being able to be there if they have questions, support them, guide them, you know, those type of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being in the kitchen for me also, you know, isn't it's not always about food, especially as you grow as a chef. You know, once you have four restaurants, you're not right. playing a huge part on the day to day. You're obviously calling shots and at a high level and thinking about the growth in your company and, and really putting out the fires more than anything uh, that come up each day. So at that point, while I was still cooking, the food is my passion. That's what got me there. You know, I wasn't really in the kitchen, so to speak. Mm. You know, I had chefs at each restaurant that I was guiding and and working with. I was, as my chef called me, uh, you know, I became a taster rather than a chef. Mm. You know, one day he told me that he's, I was like, like, you're not a chef, you're a taster. You just go around tasting food all over and tell them tell them what's wrong with it or what's right with it, you know? So it was, you know, that's it's true. Like, that's what you kind of become, you know? You're right. kind of just a critic and you're trying to help, you know, make sure the food is, is where you want it because ultimately my name is still on the restaurants.
0: I imagine you've had to sort of really focus on communicating, communicating oh like with that type of stuff. Like you're trying to, has that been something that you had to work on?
1: Yeah, communication, man. I realized very early, you know, where, you know, if somebody didn't get it, I would just go do it and show them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it was a dish that I had in my head. And I remember like, you know, working with these chefs and, you know, hey, I got this idea. Let's do this and that. And then, you know, ultimately you get it. You're like, the dish they put in front of you and you're like, oh, God. Like, sorry, this is not where I had in mind. Like, you know, let's tweak this. Let's tweak that. So they go back and they tweak it again. And you're like, oh, like, you know, and eventually you're just like, all right, it's good enough. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's ultimately not going to be the way I would have done it, but it's good enough. And, you know, I equate it to, you know, I'm not saying that I'm <laughs> nearly as talented as Van Gogh or, or Picasso. I'm not trying to compare myself to them. But it would be like having a professional artist tell somebody who's not as good as them how to do it. So it became, it still is kind of frustrating. But at the same time, I've I've learned to, you know, communicate in a way that is effective. And, you know, I'm not in the kitchens as much as I used to be. Even after I got hurt, I'm sort of on the uh, periphery and yeah. sort of working on new new concepts, new ideas for me.
0: These new concepts include the Impact Hospitality Group, which is meant to create a template for restaurant industry players to become more actively involved in social initiatives.
1: A lot of restaurants we play a passive role in charity and giving mm. and helping, meaning like, you know, people ask us to do an event or raise some money in an auction or, you know, cook at somebody's house and they you know, somebody pays us twenty thousand dollars for you know a private dinner by a famous chef, and right. you know those type of things help. But then we just go back to what we do. And I think, as industry, I think we have to start thinking more proactively and figuring out how can we, as a collective industry, start to bake in some of those ideals and from the beginning. And I hope that Impact Hospitality Group will will do that. will have a good impact and you know create a template and and show restaurants that. You know, there are ways that we can do this successfully and still be financially viable, but in a way that is, you know, a little bit more uh, embracing the community and the, the people who don't have access to great food and great education yeah. like we do.
0: Another project Eli is working on is the Chef Radio podcast, where he invites guests on to talk about
1: current topics and issues in the culinary world. Our friend Christopher Plant, who put us in touch, he started Radio Kismet, which is a subsidiary of his Kismet co-work and he, you know, he's trying to build this media channel. And, you know, he had, I think he had like four or five people that were doing podcasts. So I started poking around and, you know, uh, I mean, there are chef podcasts out there, but I wanted something that kind of was emblematic of Impact Hospitality Group. I wanted something that wasn't just telling the stories of the chefs, uh, because, you know, those are important and great lessons in, in their each each chef's journey of hard work and perseverance and all that. But I wanted something that, would also solve problems mm. in our industry and shine a spotlight on, you know, the many issues we have in our industry, uh, whether it's equality, you know, gender equality, race, you know, uh, just the lack of professionalism in our industry for so many years. And, mm. you know, there's so many, There's there's been a lot of positive steps our industry has taken, but uh, we have a long ways to go. And I want to be a part of that solution. I want to keep contributing to the mm. industry that that really raised me and that I love. And, you know, I yeah. think this is a way that I can do that. Uh, now you were
0: planning to launch the show just as, you know, the country was changed by the lockdown due to the COVID right. pandemic. Is it true that at first you thought that maybe it wouldn't have been a good time to launch the show?
1: You know, ultimately, you know, there's some opinions thrown around that, you know, maybe we need to be just be a little bit more you know, we have to go back and record certain parts of the show or take certain parts of the show that, that might seem offensive or or tone deaf. And I think what we landed on was really that there was still great stories in there that people can uh relate to and you know, not everybody wants to hear constant coronavirus news. And yeah. so, you know, we push forward and, you know, I do, uh, for the recordings that we did before the coronavirus impacted us, you know, I think there was six of them. You know, I went back and just touched base with each guest afterwards and, you know, we did an update, kind of a coronavirus update yeah. with them. And so you can access those on on the podcast as well just to kind of hear you know, what the difference of one month can make on on somebody's life.
0: Yeah. In the episode with Mike Solomonov, he kind of turned the table a little bit and asked you a question as interviewer. He said, quote, your life, Eli, is the epitome of ups and downs and adjusting and resetting your expectations. What does coronavirus mean to you? You seemed to equate the coronavirus pandemic in a way kind of to the experiences that you've had.
1: You know, we are, we are in the triage phase of this uh, coronavirus meaning if you can, you know, compare it to somebody going through a chronic or devastating or catastrophic injury. You know, like right now we are trying to figure out how to survive, and then we're going to enter the uh, the rehab phase that somebody would go through, uh, which is just you know trying to figure out um, what works, what doesn't in our industry, and you know how we can start you know sort of one foot in front of the other, the hard work, keep going. Uh, Never give up mentality that that somebody that does suffer an injury uh, has to have if they're going to come back and you know there's a lot of a lot of parallels that listeners can get from it and you know if my story resonates with somebody and can really uh, have a positive impact on them and my experiences like absolutely I want I want to be front and center in that conversation because you know a lot of people haven't experienced tragedy or right um really devastating um things in their life that you know they never had to go through something like this and you know you pull from those you know the the saying which i love is big storms make the uh, oak tree take root you know deeper roots you know and you know these storms that you survive in life and the ability to bounce back and you know you learn from these experiences and that allows you to uh, stay steadfast in these moments right so I have
0: a couple questions that I ask every guest mm-hmm. just to see what the different perspectives are. What would you say is a common misconception about you?
1: Common misconception about me um, is that I'm mad all the time. <laughs> I think as, as a chef, a lot of people will be like, man, chef, like you always look like you're mad. And it's just kind of like, I have that, you know, that I call it the um hardy, uh, resting dick face, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like it's one of those things where, uh, you know, people think I'm really intense and, I think ultimately I'm really caring and I I want the best for people. And, you know, a lot of people are are a little intimidated sometimes. And I think a lot of it is just like my size, like, you know, it's just a big dude. And I've changed a lot too. I mean, I I definitely was intense, but, you know, I'm definitely uh, not mad all the time.
0: Yeah. If you could send a message to yourself in the past at any moment, what moment would you send it to? And what would you say?
1: Uh, Don't get on that train. No. Uh, That's an obvious one. Kind of an obvious one. Yeah, exactly. I think. I think it would be, keep doing what you're doing, but just be a little bit more aware of how you're, the way you do things can impact people. You know, be more self-aware at times, you know, just understand that, you know, the way you handle yourself and the way that you do things matter, and people are, are looking at you. And sometimes as you grow into a leader, you don't realize that, oh, wait, you are exactly what your mentors were as you grow from mentor to mentee you know just really um, embrace that role and you know know that what you do has a positive or negative effect on people
0: eli and i had this conversation in the early days of the pandemic and shortly after he launched the chef radio podcast to rave reviews he's already in the midst of season two and it's available in the podcast app that you're using right now Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was produced and written by me and Catherine Nails with post-production by Jeremy Bishop and a very special thanks to Eli Culp. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. See you next time.